Continuing in our series, <clears throat> Spiritual Conversation with Peoples Who Believe Differently. <clears throat> in case you're wondering, we will finish next week. <laughs> I tell Dan, I hate to tell people how, many, how long our series is because I always think of more things to say, but it will end next week. <laughs> it, we'll, we'll, we'll jump on something new in a couple weeks. Um, I, I've shared this with you before. I'm with different people. I, I'm a pastor. I was a school teacher. Um, but my, really, my favorite job that I ever had, don't hear this wrong. I love being a pastor. <laughs> but my favorite job growing up in, in, in the work field was, was being a waiter, waiting tables in a restaurant. I, I, I just enjoyed that. It, it was just a lot of fun. Right? You walked into a shift, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and suddenly it was 11.30, and it felt like 20 minutes, right? There was no sitting around looking at your watch, and there was nothing like that. And it was just, it was just a lot of fun working in the restaurant and, and, and managing. I moved up to manager, and, and that was really even, even more fun because I didn't have to really do anything. I just kind of schmoozed, and that's kind of fun, right? You see people you know, and... Um, a couple things I, I want to note about this job of serving tables, and it, it, it fits our, our passage this morning. It's got a purpose for it. Um, the number one thing I remember for our purposes this morning is the camaraderie among the wait staff, right? They would get off work, and they would deliver. Like, they just earned their money for the evening, and they would go back into the restaurant, sit in their friend who's also a server in our restaurant. They would sit in their section, order a meal, and then give them an exorbitant tip, and then they would all hit the bar and drink. Whatever, okay. So, but, right, the camaraderie, the, the joy that they had in serving one another. They didn't look down on one another. No, there was nothing like that. And, and it involved other restaurants too, right? We would have waiters and, and, and staff from other restaurants come to our restaurant, sit in their favorite server section, tip them exorbitantly, and our servers would go do the same thing. We'd go, they'd go to their restaurant, and there was just this, this joy in serving each other. And I remember that so clearly. And the second thing, um, the, the customers, right? Let me stick on the first thing for a moment. Customers, we also developed that relationship with customers. And you would think the server, subservient to the customer. But in this restaurant, we, that wasn't the vibe. That wasn't the atmosphere. I mean, the, the, my customers, I mean, I had my customers, right? They would come in and they would not sit down until they could get a seat in my section. When I got married, they came to my wedding. They gave me expensive wedding gifts, Right? There was no inferior, superior, anything like that. There was just, I served these customers, and they kind of served me too. They found out I was in college, and, and, they, and they just kind of took part, in, in, and they kind of vicariously lived as I went through college and experienced everything. And it was just this, this joy in serving one another. It, it was just, the second thing I remember for this point, um, we hired for this specific mindset and attitude. Right? I was one of the persons doing the hiring, and if they weren't outgoing, happy-go-lucky, loved to serve people, you know, had no issues with being humble, well, there's, there's, there's who I hired, right? And some people did not have that. They, they just didn't have that. Think about it. Who would you prefer as your waiter? One of these two, right? Or, or, or one of these two guys, Right? So you got a couple choices, knowing full well, now hold on before you make your choice, knowing full well that all four of them have the exact same information about the exact same menu, right? You're going to get identical food from any one of these four servers that you choose, and a little bit more information for you. The first two are actually a bit quicker and a little bit more organized. They're actually better servers. <laughs> They're more competent, 
Can I just tell you, in hiring, competency took a back seat. Right? I can teach somebody to be a waiter, but character and chemistry, right? If they had the right character and chemistry, hire them, right? We'll, we'll work around everything else because we, we hired for the job, and the job was to give people a great time, to serve them and make sure that they enjoyed their evening out. That, that was the whole goal. See, the owners of my restaurant, they understood something vitally important when it comes to conveying a message, right? The medium is the message, right? We hired our waiters. They, they embodied the spirit of the Brigantine restaurant. I mean, that, that's, that's what it was. They, that's how we hired, right? Canadian communications theorist Marshall McLuhan, hope I'm pronouncing that right. In the 1960s, he coined the expression the global village, um, predicted the World Wide Web 30 years before any of that came about. And he was known for saying the message is the medium. Right, basically, let me make sure I don't want to mansplain, but make sure we're all on the same page here. A medium is the vehicle through which an, an idea is conveyed. Right? You, we, can, we can talk about Davy Crockett. We can watch a television series about Davy Crockett. We can listen to a radio program about Davy Crockett. We can listen to a play or we can read a book. Those are all different mediums, but the message is Davy Crockett. Right? So we got different mediums. Okay? And what this man said is he believed that the means or the medium of communication was intimately related to how the message was received. You get one of those people at your table, the first two, and they're telling you the meal is good, not 100% agreement. I mean, just, just look at their, the whole attitude is like, no, this place stinks. You don't want to be eating here. But, they, but the second two, the, the, the food could be horrible, but I'd probably order it because they, they just, just have such a winsome attitude. And just, just look at them. They were, they're just wonderful looking guys, right? The way a message is communicated has as much to say as the message itself. Therefore, the same message would be perceived differently if it were received through one of two different people, the waiters. Right, which has ginormous implications for our series this morning. The goal of which, and we've been looking at this every week, sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, super important to note, Jesus didn't just preach and teach about the kingdom of God, nor did he simply represent the kingdom of God as in representing something different, someone different, right? Representing them, trying to get their ideas across. Jesus didn't just bring a message. Right? Jesus Christ was the message. The medium is the message. God is love. Jesus Christ is God. The medium is the message. Jesus Christ was the kingdom of God in the flesh, dwelling among us, full of grace and truth, communicating, communicating God's self in everything he did. And by way of the cross and Easter Sunday, we can begin even now to live lives in the kingdom by kingdom principles, principles like grace and peace and truth and forgiveness. We'd all love to live in a kingdom like that. We can begin to affect a kingdom like this. We can change the current kingdoms of the world. That's what the holiness message is. That's what the church Nazarene's all about. We can change this world if we don't just sit back and do nothing. And that's good news, folks that we can live by kingdom principles even today. And as we've discovered, this was the life of Jesus Christ. This is, this is what he did. This is what he spent his days doing, right? Noticing people. He would notice the outcasts. He prayed for the confused. He listened to the hurting. He asked questions when most people just had answers. 
He loved the unlovable. He welcomed the lost. And today we're going to look at how he served. And again, kind of like last week, we kind of have an idea, right, of what serving means. Like last week, we have an idea of what welcoming means, right? Well, we welcome people into our home and we welcome people around our table, but that's really not the heart of the Bible. It's really are we welcoming in our heart, right? It's great. I mean, I've met people who are welcoming in their heart. I just needed to say this. Very welcoming in their attitudes towards all peoples, but they're very, very private people, so they're not that welcoming in their home and around their table. But I think God's okay with their open heart. And then that's the gist of it, right? Christ is happy when we invite people around our tables and we invite people into our home, but he's even happier when we open up our hearts to them, even when they're radically different than us. That's the welcome that Christ is looking for, right? And that's the welcome that the people of this world are looking for. Great, you invited us to a meal, but do you care about us? The point we've made every week in this series, if you and I would simply, love this phrase, I, I, very specific, if you and I would just, just simply live like Jesus lived, walk the way Jesus walked, treat people the way Jesus did, then we could have immediate and eternal impact on the lives of those around us. Sounds pretty easy, right? I mean, it's all right here, right? Y'all can read. I can read. We... Uh, but we don't, right? We don't. Now, here's, here's the tragic part. I think here, this is the heartbreaking part. I'm absolutely convinced the vast majority of Christians live as Jesus lived to the best of their ability and the best of their knowledge. They walk the way Jesus walked. They treat people the way Jesus treated people, but tragically, they inadvertently, I think unconsciously, they limit and restrict any kind of immediate or eternal impact that they can have because they make or they believe a couple of statements and ideas. Christians, we do this. We, get, we grab on to like a phrase or something, and we spout it as if it was Scripture, but it's not many times. And I, I want to look at three ideas this morning that we feel, they feel scriptural, but they're, just, they're, they're not, right? We kind of got to nuance these things just a little bit. The first thing, first statement Christians make well-meaning, well-meaning Christians tend to make and they believe only God needs to see my good deeds. But I would say that Jesus would disagree. I think he would just flat out disagree with this. Right in the middle of his famous Sermon on the Mount, right, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus actually says just the opposite, right? The exact opposite. Now, keep in mind, the Sermon on the Mount kind of represents Jesus' opus, right? Everything you need to know about the kingdom of God, how to live in the kingdom of God, how to operate, how to treat people, everything is right there. It's like the compendium of, of Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God. Here's the kingdom of God in three chapters. Here's what Jesus has to say about good deeds. Listen closely. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, we've all heard this. We know this, right? I'm sure you've heard a sermon. If you haven't, I'll tell it to you right now in about 10 seconds. Salt preserves, salt enhances. And apparently, I think salt does a whole bunch of other things, which kind of tells us pastors don't land on any one of them because there's a whole lot of ideas involved with salt. But I just kind of want to take these two. And really, I think all the other uses for salt will, will work here. But there's something else about salt other than preserving, enhancing, and all the other stuff. You can't miss its presence or absence. 
Whatever it's for, if it's absent, you know, right? Your food's going to taste lousy, right? If that meat wasn't properly salted, everybody is going to know because everybody's going to get sick, right? And if salt is present, everybody knows because it tastes good, right? But if it's absent, you can't hide that fact. If you oversalt or undersalt, you can't hide that fact, right? You got to be an amazing chef to get over that one. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. You can't miss its presence and absence. It screams its presence and its absence. And what about light? Same thing. You are a light on the hill. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Again, you cannot miss its presence or absence, right? As soon as you stub your toe, you know there was no light, right? Even if you were stumbling around in the middle of the night and you had no idea if there was light or not, it screams its presence and its absence, light. Right? You can't hide it unless you put it under a bowl. And I think well-meaning, misguided Christians put their good deeds under a bowl. I don't know, attempt to be humble, try not to be prideful. I mean, I get it. That, that makes total sense, but Scripture doesn't give us that option. If salt loses its saltiness, if light is covered or kept a secret, it ceases to be useful. To catch that, Jesus calls us salt and light. And if we're not being salt, screaming our presence, and if we're not being light, screaming our presence, we cease to be useful. You're not going to go to hell for this. You just cease to be useful in God's mission. Quick note about light. The Jews spoke of Jerusalem as a light to the Gentiles. A famous rabbi would be called, right, a, a light of Israel. But the one thing that Jesus, the Jews knew beyond any doubt is that no man lit his own candle, right? Anyone who has light received that light from something or somebody else. Jerusalem was the light to the Gentiles, but God lit Israel's lamp. Our light is borrowed or a reflected kind of light. Jesus never asked us to produce our own light because that would draw attention to ourselves, right? In fact, Jesus addresses this in the very next chapter in chapter 6. I'm going to jump into chapter 6 and I'm going to come back to chapter 5. Chapter 6, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It's like, wait, wait, whoa, that sounds like just the opposite of what Jesus just said. Let me continue, verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. I want you to catch that phrase. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Remember the motivation in chapter 5. It was to honor our Heavenly Father, and our Heavenly Father would honor us when we honor Him. Something entirely different going on here, right? You're seeing this. These people were not honoring God. They wanted people to honor them. Two different things going on entirely. Let me keep reading. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will, will reward you. And Jesus goes on to say the exact same thing about praying and fasting. 
Now here, this is, this is key. The issue isn't about doing things in public or doing things in private. That's really not the issue. The issue is our motivation. Are we doing good things for our own reputation and glory? Are we doing them for the kingdom? Are we doing them for God's glory? Back to chapter 5. Jesus explains what salt and light is referring to. Because we've got a whole bunch of ideas. I mean, I've read so much stuff. Once you get to light, light is a guide. You're trying to light. A whole bunch of stuff. But that's not what the scripture says, what the light is for. Listen to this. In the same way as salt and light, right, really majoring on the light, but including both of these ideas, salt and light, in the same way, okay, so it's not about salt and light. It's not about being actually salt and it actually being light, right? That's just, the, that's just the medium for the message, right? Here's the message. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. We're salt and light when we do good deeds, not when we believe correctly. That, that's a part of it. Not when we live pure lives. That's a, that's a part of it. Not when we have perfect Bible knowledge. That, that's all a part of it. But what he's referring to here is our good deeds when we do loving, gracious things for other people. The ethics, the ethics of the kingdom of God, right? Things like showing mercy and making peace with one's enemies. These are tangible good deeds, right? You can put your hands on them. You can feel them. You can experience them. That means that they will draw people to the one whose very nature is peace, and mercy, right, our Heavenly Father. Interesting to note here, your good deeds in this passage, this would have shocked the early Jewish people. Absolutely shocking. Because Gentiles and people aren't, aren't light. Right, the good deeds, they outweigh the Torah, the temple, Jerusalem, Israel, even the perfection of the Pharisees, your good deeds outweigh all of those when it comes to sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. The good things that you do for your neighbor, it's not your Bible knowledge, it's not your purity of life. Do you do good deeds? The good deeds of the church, because this, this is a kind of all y'all kind of thing, right? It's not, it's not really delivered to us as individuals. This, is, this message is delivered to us as a group. It was actually delivered to the disciples. We're his disciples. In all of our perfect imperfections, in all of our failings, we are God's choice for communicating himself to people who are not yet in a relationship with him. Here's the second thing I want you to know. Good deeds, a couple different words for good. One word is just good and quality, good job, fixing my car, good job, fixing my plumbing, good job on that drawing, good, good job, good job, that, that, that's, that's one, but there's a second word, it means good and winsome and beautiful and attractive, guess which word Jesus uses? That's the second word, right? The good deeds of the Christians, the ones motivated and driven by the desire to be salt and light, right? They have to be good but they really need to be attractive, right, and beautiful, which kind of like love requires another, right? These ideas don't exist in a vacuum. They, they don't exist as by themselves, right? They only exist when there's another person to experience love, to experience mercy, to experience beauty, to experience attractiveness. There's always involved another. These, these ideas don't stand by themselves, 
right? They're non-ideas all by themselves. They only become an active idea when there's another person involved. I think the first tragedy of so much Christian goodness, and there is, I said this earlier, so much Christian goodness, I think it's purposely hidden and kept secret. Again, in an honest, well-meaning, but I think misplaced desire to be humble, to not be prideful. And the second tragedy of so much, again, so much Christian goodness is that it comes wrapped in a cold, kind of hard package, even judgmental sometimes, kind of a look down the nose kind of thing. See, there's a goodness that attracts, which is winsome, kind of an old phrase, but then there's a goodness that repels too. And we need to be aware of that. And here's the second comment we make that just doesn't line up with Scripture, tightly related to the first comment. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. And and, and I get it, right? We all know just how far we fall short. We are all acutely aware of just how far we fall short. Again, in Bible knowledge, purity of life, the list goes on. But it seems to me that as vitally important as Bible knowledge and the purity of life matter to our testimony, and they do, don't get me wrong, they matter in a big, big, big way, the core ethical message of the Sermon on the Mount is kind of encapsulated in us being salt and light, the way we influence our world, the way they see our Heavenly Father in us. I mean, you could just wrap it all up in that salt and light. Our godly deeds reflect the very nature and character of God. When we serve with selfless intentions and they notice, people notice, they do, you can't hide that. Our lack of Bible knowledge, our occasional lapse in purity, here's the crazy thing. When you're doing good and beautiful things for people, they will overlook so much, right? They will overlook all your failures. They will overlook your pathetic Bible knowledge. They will overlook your foul mouth. As long as you do beautiful and good things, Love covers a multitude of sins, right? It just does. Here's what the Apostle Paul had to say on the topic, right? 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5 says this, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, I love that phrase, that was a reserved phrase for people like Moses and Solomon. And here Paul gives it to Gentiles, right? Again, this beloved by God. That he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction, right? We tend to think that if we serve people, right, this is kind of the way it should go. We serve them, you know, to demonstrate God's love, right? And then then if they become Christians, if they become Christians, let me say, if they become Christians, then they can join in our effort to love our communities only if they believe and become Christians one of us. And and this order seems appropriate, right? If they serve with us before they're saved, they might misunderstand and think that the good works are saving them. Heaven forbid. But I think we can trust the work of the Holy Spirit, right, in the lives of people who are working alongside us so that the gospel comes not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with conviction. It's not just spoken, it's modeled, Hugh Halter talks about it in his book, The Tangible Kingdom. This is what he says. The incarnational big story gospel, right, will require a place of discovery. 
where people will be able to see the truth before they hear about it. They'll be able to see it in action before somebody explains it. This place will not be a location, but a community of people who are inclusive of everybody. These people, this inclusive community, will make eternity attractive by how they live such selfless lives now and will be modeling life in the new kingdom in ways that make it easy for other people to give it a try. Love that. People will belong before they believe, and that rubs some of us wrong, right? Get them, get them to agree with everything that we believe, then they can join us. Believe, and we'll let you be a part of us. And rather than saying, don't look at me, look at Jesus, here's what Paul says instead. You know how we lived among you for your sake, right? You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, right? You notice it's just the opposite of our little phrase that we Christians love to say. Paul says, no, absolutely not. Right? He's very clear on the incredible, excellent example he and his co-workers had sent for them. He went, he goes to, and you go to chapter 2 of this first Thessalonians chapter 2 in this first letter that he writes in the first 12 verses all about how wonderful and how incredible of an example Paul and his co-workers are and that the Thessalonians should be really watching them closely. And a modern Christian would go, oh, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Like in a panic. If the messenger is genuine, the message is supported, right? And because Paul and the Thessalonians joyfully accepted the difficult position of being role models, right, for the kingdom, which included the possibility of being persecuted, having to give up selfish desires, loving your enemies, and so you became a model because they accepted the role of being a model. And they didn't hide behind phrases. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. I'm not doing this for you, I'm doing this for God. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Their faith in God has become known. Your faith in God has become known everywhere, right? Rang out like a trumpet, crashing out like a roll of thunder. Something very tremendous about the sheer defiance of the early Christians. Right? They could easily have chosen lifestyles that would kind of kept them under the radar, right? to avoid persecution, to avoid the hatred of the populace. Just go and give, it, give a little bit to that idol. God knows your heart. You just don't want to make the people mad. Just cave, cave here and there, cave here and there. Early Christians, they just sallied forth in their faith and took the consequences. They were never ashamed to show whose they were or whom they chose to serve. A final thing that Christians say and do that severely limits and restricts the effectiveness of our ministry, we serve the poor. Now, <laughs> there's about a thousand different ways I wanted to write that so that you didn't get misled. Um, don't get me wrong. We're definitely called to serve the poor. But the manner in which we serve the poor matters. It, it matters. The medium is the message, right? 
When addressing the physical needs of folks, it's very, very easy to kind of slip into the kind of a superior, kind of a condescending attitude. Like, I've got everything that you need, and you have nothing to contribute. So just shut up and let me save you. I don't want to hear about your life because your life's a mess. I'm here to fix it. Right? And we get this attitude, we truly do. Churches, they, it, it happens. It just happens. And I'm not bagging on anybody. It just happens. Something that we have to watch for because it does happen. In addition, we can't limit serving to physical poverty. Right? We've got to speak into emotional, mental, and spiritual poverty as well. A lot of times they are connected, but not all the time. Right? We get this idea that we're only serving if we go to the wrong side of the tracks. Right? And we give out sandwiches. Well, there's about a bazillion other ways that we can serve that will grow the kingdom, I promise you. But above all else, these warnings, here's something we tend to overlook when it comes to how Jesus served. Jesus modeled serving together. I don't know if you recognize that, if you notice that. Not just alongside fellow believers, right, which the unity of which is part of our testimony, part of our witness, right? Christ said, if you love one another, that's kind of your message, Right, that this kingdom is a re- really a great place to be, but if you don't love each other, who wants to be a part of that kingdom? Right, so the fact that we believers, that we work together, that is part of our message. But equally important to our witness and testimony is serving alongside folks who don't yet know Jesus. Right, if we limit ourselves to church people serving non-church people, we may be ignoring the most loving, the most authentic, the most dynamic approach, which is serving together with them not traveling from our wealthy side of town to their poor side of town doing an hour or something and then jumping back in our cars and escaping back to our suburbs that's uh. in several memorable scenes Jesus asked people to participate in the work that he was doing even though they did not yet understand who he was or what he was about But he had a purpose. He had a reason, right? He asked wedding servants to fill 30-gallon pots with water when the wine had run out. He asked a Samaritan woman to give him a drink from a well the heat of the day. He told a lame man man to carry his mat, a blind man to go wash clay from his eyes, and mourners to remove a stone from a cave and to unwrap the dead man that walks out. Oh, you do it, Jesus. (laughs) Why did Jesus ask people to take part in these actions when he was about to reveal far more grace and love than they could ever experience and ever achieve on their own? Clearly, right, obedience to his command, that's, that's a part of this. Definitely a part of this. Obedience is a part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? But, but action on Jesus' behalf may also prepare people to better understand who he was and what he was about, just working alongside him. He knew that they could watch him, they could see him, they could hear him, they could ask questions. The whole pitch is removed from the conversation. And when we spend worthwhile time with people who may share very little in common with us otherwise, right, they just may get a glimpse of Jesus. As we serve alongside people who don't yet know Jesus, they get to experience the difference that Jesus made in our lives. And by God's grace, (laughs) they're going to see his character shining through us. And even when the pressure is on and we do something stupid, right, we scream, we lose our temper, the message of the gospel still speaks clearly 
right, when we seek forgiveness and we admit, right, we don't have it all together. By demonstrating the good news, we earn the right to talk about it. Our lifestyle of love supports and gives credence to our witness and our testimony. Here's the bottom line. Serving alongside spiritual seekers, it does help them. They experience God's love and his truth in action as they watch us, work alongside us, deepening relationships, and just the time spent together opens up vibrant discussions about life and God. This is incarnational ministry. This is what we're called to do is incarnational, right? Become one with them and not keep a separation from them. The medium is the message. God is love. I want to give you a final challenge. Lots of folks don't want to be role models. Too much pressure. Lots easier to say things like, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Only God needs to see what I'm doing. He knows my heart. He'll understand if I'm a jerk to people. Hey, I'm helping them. We are not given that option. We are not given the option of saying, well, that's just the way I am. They'll have to get over it. We're called to a higher standard. We are called to be role models, and it will be difficult. It will be a little bit of pressure, but we're not given any other option. We are his ambassadors. We represent Christ. And when we hide our good deeds, kind of shooting ourselves in the foot, aren't we? Y'all bow your heads. Father, help us to be faithful witnesses. Help us both in our, our actions and in our words, because our words explain our actions. In both, Father, help us to be courageous, have no fears, and to simply open up conversations with neighbors, find out where they're at, what their hurts are. We don't have to have perfect Bible knowledge. We do not have to live the perfect life. We just have to have an open heart. Father, give us heart. Thank you for the fact that you've never stopped giving us heart, but you like us to ask. And so we ask, Father, give us, give us heart, give us courage. Give us your Holy Spirit. And then give us ears to hear when he directs our paths. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray.